This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. As we uh, have look, been looking at this beginning of sorrows in uh, Matthew chapter 24, um, we talked about the beginning of the Olivet Discourse and all of that, and, and I want to just take a moment and pause and just share a few things with you before we move on. One of them is what we talked about a little bit on Wednesday night. For those of you men that weren't there, you didn't hear that. Women, it's a men's thing, so you didn't hear from your husband. You didn't hear it at all. But one of the things that I shared... Uh, hopefully to get us all a little more inspired to study his word, is to ask the question to everybody there, what is this, this book that we hold? And by the way, it's a book, it's not an app. So uh, I would encourage you to bring a Bible uh, with you and not necessarily use a Bible app. I'm not anti-technology, obviously, but I have realized that I have done us a great disservice over the years and placing all the scriptures we're going to look at behind me. And so everybody's eyes is focused up as I just go through the PowerPoint slide rather than down, circling and taking notes in God's Word. Because when we leave, we don't have the PowerPoint slides anymore. We have this. And so I want to... We're not going to have many slides today for that reason. I just want to maybe focus back here. But the question I ask is, what what is this book? Um, and the answers that I, I got were the same answers that I would have shared. It's their, um, um, you know, it's the Bible and what's the function of the Bible. It tells us about Christ. It's our guidebook and our instruction manual. It's our love letter from the Lord. It's, uh, and I think Mo shared, it's the infallible word of God. What does that mean? And then we, you know, that means there's no errors in it and it's true from beginning to end. I think Levi said, the, um, it's, it's spe- everything that it speaks on is true and it speaks on everything. You know, we've talked about that, right? And we gave all the answers and the one that we missed is what I want to share with you right now. Um, the scriptures teach us that we're to t- test every spirit that comes our way. If someone stands up and says, I heard from God and God told me to do this, uh, Acts 17.11 says we're to be like Bereans and we're to confirm a prophetic utterance. We're to confirm a tongue and interpretation. We're to confirm your own voice that you hear when God speaks to you by a finite standard, and that standard is God's word. True? I've really been struggling with an issue, and I didn't know what to do, so I asked the Lord to answer this prayer of mine, and all of a sudden, bam, he gave me the answer, and I heard his voice, or however magnanimous you want to make it. That's not God's answer to you unless it's confirmed in his word. If you're in a, I can't say example, if you are you know, in a marriage that you feel kind of, depressed about because you got all these kids and there's so much responsibility and nobody affirms you at home. It's just changing poopy diapers and mowing lawns and stuff of that nature. But your secretary just arouses something in you that you haven't felt in a long time. And you ask the Lord, is it okay for me to dump my wife and my family in order to be with her because God wants me to be happy and it's my best life now. And if you hear a voice 
that tells you it's God saying it is, it ain't. And how do we know that? Because it doesn't confirm with God's word. True? Now listen to me. Every prayer request that you have, everything you have ever prayed about, everything that you're praying about right now, is the answer is found in here. Because God will never tell you something that's not confirmed in his word. And if you're like, I don't know if I should take this job. I don't know if we should move. I don't know if I should buy this purchase. Whatever your prayer request is, I don't know what to do with my kids. I don't know how to restore this relationship. I don't know how to, to get victory over this besetting sin that I have. The answer to that is right here. The problem is we don't take time to search for it. We don't take time to prayerfully ask God to speak to us. And so as we're going through God's word, especially as life gets darker and darker for us as Christians out there, it behooves us to spend more time in this word because everything we're looking for is found here. Amen? Wednesday night, from last Sunday, as we're talking about the Olivet Discourse and Jesus is giving us the signs of the times, you know, do not be deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. You know, you'll hear wars and rumors of wars of pestilence and famines and earthquakes in various places. Do not be troubled by all those things. All these things must take place. And it's just the beginning of birth pains. What we did is we looked in the book of Revelation and we looked at Revelation chapter 6 and we looked at the first five seals that were broken. Do you remember us doing that? And showed that every one of those seals correlated completely with what Christ said. You will find that that uh, there will be false Christ that will come and many in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And so we started looking in the very first seal that we saw was Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 and 2 where it says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see, or literally proceed. And I looked, and behold, there was a white horse. Well, this must be Jesus. And he who sat on it had a bow. Where does that come from? And a crown was given to him. Well, Christ has a crown, and he went out conquering and to conquer, and many people believe that this is Christ, and it's not. It's the Antichrist, and we're going to talk next week about some of the attributes of the Antichrist and what to look for, um, because I firmly believe that he's alive today. Um, just waiting for situations to present themselves that will usher in the second coming of Christ after a certain interval. And so, and so as I was beginning to, to look at those, I said it's the right way, I was beginning to look at these seven seals and tie them into what Christ was saying because I don't want to rush through the Olivet Discourse at all. It was like the Lord told me, you know, before we jump into chapter 6, we need to step back and just bless your people. Okay, so how do we, how do we give a blessing to each of you? Now, it's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, and it says this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it for the time is near. And so what I want to do for the next half hour here is I just want to give us a, a background by just reading chapters 1, chapters 3, and chapter 4, or now chapters 4 and chapter 5, bringing us up to date so that next week we can jump into chapter 6 and see exactly what's going on here. And I want to give you from the Scripture this resplendent view of who this Christ is. 
I see over and over again that as soon as the four living creatures offer praise and glory to God, that these 24 elders fall on their face like in compulsion, bam, on the ground. But when is the last time that has happened to you when you've been in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? When is the last time that his presence and his goodness and his wonder and his grace and just the magnitude of who God is and who we are so overwhelmed us that we can no longer stand, we just kind of slunk down on the ground and just face down, uneven, able to look up on our unworthiness and to the face of Christ. The church does that all the time in the book of Revelation. Every time Christ shows up, the, the redeemed, you and I, collapse in front of him. And we offer these these praises and adulation, if you'll follow them through the book of Revelation, they increase with with intensity and with tempo and and more superlatives are added to this Jesus, so it's almost to the point we don't have enough English words to describe him. And you've got the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and you've got all the other people gathered around, and then there's this myriad upon myriad, which is what the King James says, which is the biggest number that the, that the Greeks had in our Bible is thousands upon ten thousands and thousands and thousands of, of other angels are just crying out these attributes of God in heaven. And you and I, of course, will just be sitting there thinking about the things we have to do when we go home, thinking about work and, and not really wanting to, to prostrate ourselves before the Lord because that makes me feel uncomfortable, not wanting to share a testimony about his goodness because I just feel uncomfortable when all of the universe is proclaiming his glory. And I'm looking at the standard that we see what heaven is like from the redeemed, and I'm looking at... Every church service I've ever been in, every church service that I've ever preached at, you know, even my personal private time with the Lord, and they pale in comparison to just a glimpse of that. And the question is, why? And I think it's because we don't really see him for who he is, and we see us as overinflated of who we are. And so what I want to do as we start going through this is I just want to, I just want to, show you by just reading this and making just a few comments and defining a few words what John saw, kind of as a preamble to getting back to the Matthew chapter 24. And I don't have this on the slides before us. I mean, Karen, when she was proofing it, she normally proofs 300 slides, and she stops and goes, that's it? I said, yeah, that's it. Because I want you to get a pencil out. I want you to circle some of these words. I, I want you to see how they connect together, to see how marvelous all of this works out. I want you to put yourself in a place of John and, and just get a glimpse of who this Jesus is. Before we go through this, we're going to find that there's a couple elements that kind of jump out at us, especially when we get to chapter 4. We're not going to do chapter 2 and 3. That deals with the church, and we've already kind of talked about that. We're just going to talk about what John saw on earth and when he was transported up in the Spirit into heaven. We're going to see a throne, and we're going to see some elders, 24 of them to... As a matter of fact, we're going to try to define who those elders are. Each of those elders is going to have a crown, and we're going to try to figure out what this crown is. We find in Revelation chapter 6 that this rider on a white horse has a crown. Is that a diadem? Is that a stephanus? Is that a ruling crown that a king has? Is that a wreath like a, an Olympic athlete has? I mean, what kind of crown is this? We're going to see a phrase in here called the seven spirits of God. We're going to see that over and over and over again. And if you're not careful, you're going to 
be confused with the word seven there. And then we're going to talk about these four living creatures and who they are and where they kind of play into. And we're hopefully we're going to uh, get to the point today where we're introduced to the lamb. And when you look at this phrase for a lamb, this is not a full-grown lamb in the Greek. This is like a baby sheep. It's like a pet. It's like the Passover lamb, because if you remember what they required, is you would take a lamb and he would live in your house like a pet, like a puppy, for six days. On the seventh day, you would kill that lamb. And the Lord wanted you to have affection for that lamb, wanted you to, to understand what that blood cost because of this love that you have for this little lamb. That's the phrase that's used here for the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in power and majesty. And maybe today and maybe next week we can, we can try to determine based on all that's happening here, based on what Christ has told us about the future, what our natural, reasonable reaction is as we see what the saints do up in heaven. Amen? So we're going to start Revelation chapter 1. Let me just read this. And I want you to just get a flow of what's happening here. The revelation, that's singular. It's not multiple revelation. One. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to him, which God gave him. So God the Father is giving Jesus Christ a revelation. He's going to turn around and give it to John to show his servants, plural, things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angel. This is the only book of the Bible that I know of that was actually delivered to a human being by an angel signified and sent by a heavenly messenger to his servant, John. Those two words, servant, in in chapter 1, verse 1, is the word doulos, which means slave, a bond slave, someone who has voluntarily given up all their rights to someone else. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent it and signified it, by his angel to his servant John, talking about John now, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. If you want to do a quick study, what you might want to do is begin right here with things that John saw and circle that and start reading the the, uh, black text as you're going through the first couple chapters and start writing down and circling everything John witnessed. I saw, I heard, I asked, I was told. This is an eyewitness account of John sharing this event with you. And then the promise. All this promise is in present tense. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear, not have heard or will hear, and who keep the words of this prophecy and who keep those things which are written in it, why? For the time is near. And if it was near when John wrote this on Patmos, it is obviously even nearer today. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his God the Father's throne. The first chapter, chapters one, and then of course we have the letters to the seven churches in chapter two and three. In chapter four, we see these events that take place. The throne that they're looking at is the throne of God. And you have these seven spirits that are before his throne. Have to understand the book of Revelation is written in a classic heptatic structure. Everything is based on sevens. There are 
The whole book is based on three sets of seven judgments. I talked about this last week. You have seven seal judgments. You have six that are open. And the seventh judgment, of course, brings in the trumpet judgments. You have seven trumpet judgments. And when the last judgment is blown, it brings in the the vile or bold judgments. And so when it's talking about the seven spirits of God, in keeping with this ancient Jewish heptatic structure, it's talking about the Holy Spirit in his fullness, the Holy Spirit in his completeness. It's not talking about seven individual pictures of the Holy Spirit. It's just talking about the Holy Spirit perfected, complete, and whole using the heptatic structure. So when you see this phrase, the seven spirits are before his throne, we're talking about the Holy Spirit in all his completeness. Grace to you from him, God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits are who are before his, God the Father's throne, and from Jesus Christ, all members of the Trinity here, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, watch this, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We get to chapter, uh, we get to verse 5 and 6, and we find that Christ loves us. Now, we, the church, are brought into this. And it says because he loves us in verse 6 that he has made us kings and priests. There are only two people in the scripture that the Bible talks as being a king and a priest. The first one was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the only reason why he shows up in the book of Genesis is because God wanted us to see him, and Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus is coming as a king and a priest like Melchizedek, and so he has this short ministry. He shows up, Abraham gives tithes to him, blesses him, and then, we, then he's gone. And the other person who's a king and a priest happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it talks about that God has made us like Christ. God is seated with us in the heavenlies. That God says that we are also kings and priests. And if you want to know how important that is, and I'm jumping ahead here, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse number 8. Because earlier we're introduced to these 24 elders who have these crowns. You had this throne of God, this resplendent glory, and this light shining. It's like on a sea or a pavement of glass, and it's just described as as certain emeralds. And around that throne, you got these four living creatures that we see in Ezekiel and we see in Daniel, and and all of a sudden they're proclaiming God's goodness. And around the, the, the four living creatures in the throne, you have these 24 thrones, which are closest to the Lord. They've got the primo artist circle seats, and seated on those are 24. 24 elders, and there's nowhere in Scripture where the number 24 shows up that kind of applies to these elders. And so you have to, who are they and and what do they represent? And if you'll notice that as kings and priests that God has made us in Revelation chapter 1, we see what happens now in Revelation chapter 5 where these priests or these elders are defined. Verse number 8. Now when when he, the Lord, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, 
each having a harp, which is symbolic of worship in heaven, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they. Now, nowhere in Scripture does it talk about the four living creatures singing, which if you want to add the they and say it's them also, that's fine. Most probably the they is talking about the 24 elders. They sang a new song saying this. This is the 24 elders singing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain and have redeemed, look at this word again, us, to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The 24 elders, by this praise and doxology, are defining themselves as Christ, the ones that Christ redeemed, the ones that Christ saved, who are now made kings and priests. And if you'll go back to Revelation chapter 1, that's you. The 24 elders that are around the throne represent you. They represent the church. They represent the redeemed. So everything the 24 elders do, they're like a, like a representation of the composite church. They may be the ones that are closest, but you're further back. And what they do, you do. Because as their kings and priests, you're kings and priests. If they worship the Lord, you worship the Lord. If they do it this way, it's expected that we see him with that glory and do it the same way. Verse number 7 of chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, or even so, truth, let it be so. And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ making a statement here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end to you Gentiles, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's You'll find that over and over and over again that the phrase that's used for Christ, the Almighty, and for God the Father is the same word that was used for God identifying himself to Abraham. I am that I am. I am the Almighty. And there was no one greater than me. So verse 9, John begins to tell his testimony. So I want you to imagine him sitting up here. Not me. You've got this man who's much older than I am, who was released from Patmos, and he bears on his body like Paul did, obviously the brand marks of Christ. And he's sharing his personal testimony with you of this amazing event that he was able to share because Christ commanded him to share it. Paul was taken up into the third heaven, and that that trip up to the third heaven to where God dwells was just for Paul. He heard words up there, and he heard a conversation that took place that he wasn't even allowed to share with us, inexplicable words that it's not lawful for me to share. But John was giving a vision like that, and he was told, write it down. Write it down and deliver it to the churches. Write it down and let everybody know. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Over and over again, we see, blessed are you and men revile you and persecute you and say all manners of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And in the Olivet Discourse, that you will be persecuted and many of you will be put to death because of my name's sake, but the end is not yet. Later on, all who desire to give godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is your birthright. And we've lived in a nation that has forestalled the persecuting hand of the state against the church, but those days are changing. Can you see? Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was having a time of fellowship with the Lord that was unlike anything else. Maybe I was praying, and because I was so burdened and so troubled that I didn't even know how to pray, and the Holy Spirit took my words and prayed for me in groans and utterances I couldn't even understand. Whatever it was, I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day. So we picture the, the John there, and he's worshiping the Lord. I mean, picture the time in your private time with the Lord that you've worshipped the Lord so intently. You felt his presence, and the, the hairs on your arms were standing up, and, and you had this calm assurance, and you knew that you were somehow in the presence of the Lord. And in the middle of that fellowship and that awe, maybe you were on your face or on your knees or, or just crying over your word or whatever it was, and in the midst of all that, there was an arresting voice behind you, this loud voice, I am, and startled. You turn around to see who it was. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as if a trumpet. You know, it's not like a loud voice like a bolt of lightning or thunder. It's not a loud voice like someone yelling. It's not a loud voice that became kind of kind of small and manageable and then moved up to this really loud crescendo like we put our hands over our ears when a jet's getting ready to take off and then come back down. It's like a trumpet. Like someone standing behind you and blowing a trumpet, and your first response would be the startled response. I didn't expect that. What was that? It arrested my attention. And this loud voice said this. Same voice he would speak to you in your quiet times with him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Okay. I can imagine John like Paul. Paul is... On the Damascus Road, he hears this voice, he sees this bright light, he falls off his donkey, the voice identifies himself, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the first thing that Paul says is the first thing that John implies here, what do you want me to do? What's your will for my life? And so there's that implied question here, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Then you have this little black and. Two separate statements John is recording here, and it's like an implied question. What do you want me to do, Lord? You visited me in such a profound way. There must be something you called me to do. I have. What you see, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. There's this voice behind him. John is startled, and he hears this voice, but because of the magnitude of realizing that Christ is behind him, and John hadn't seen Jesus since he was ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. It says, then I turned to see who this voice was. I wanted to lay my eyes upon my Lord. Unlike us, John had spent three and a half years with Jesus in the flesh. He knew who he was. He recognized him. He 
broke bread with him. He had dinner with him. And so he turned to see Christ. He even saw Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was clothed in, in something that was so brilliant that John couldn't even describe it. It's like, it's like, like something so white that no launderer could ever bleach it that white. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, there was a scene played out in front of him. I saw seven golden lampstands. These are not outside torches that we find in verse number four and five. These are these inward lamps filled with oil. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of God. I, I, I've seen Jesus different than I ever had before. I've never quite seen him like this. He was clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair and his head and hair were white. Well, how white were they? White, I don't know, like, like, like wool. As white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. One of the things that you will notice as we go through this that John is a man just like you. And John is being transported in his time, being transported up into heaven to see things that he's trying to describe based on his frame of reference. We would say it was a bright light. It was, it was, it was, it was like a searchlight, like the light on top of a lighthouse. It was that bright. John had no clue what that meant. He could never use that example because he's never experienced something like that. And so all John is doing from his frame of reference is trying to describe what he saw from where he lived in the time he lived. That's why you'll find phrases like, 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 which means it wasn't wool. It, it, it was like wool. But then you'll see times where he doesn't say like at all. And the, his face was this. And, and the sea was made of this. And so you'll find that John is describing things as they actually are, or when he sees things that he can't quite describe, he gives us some sort of adjective to try to explain what it was like. His eyes, verse number 15, were like a flaming fire. His feet were like his, uh, verse number 16, his countenance was like the sun shining in, in all its strength. Fuel. Turn real quick to, to um, verse chapter 4. We see this as John's taken up into heaven. After these things I looked, verse 1, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, verse number 3, and he who sat on it was like Jasper, towards the end of that, in appearance like an emerald. Verse number six, before the throne, there was a sea of glass. I, I, I don't know what to see, but it was like crystal. Verse number seven, the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf. It wasn't a calf, but it was like a calf. And the third living creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Chapter six, verse one, now when, when I saw the lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, on and on and on. So go back to chapter one, verse, or chapter one, if you would. We find this in these descriptions. 
Verse 14, his head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, if it's refined in a furnace, glowing. And his voice was the sound of many waters, standing by this rushing, just, just rushing river when Karen and I, I don't know, about a month ago, seems forever ago, went to Niagara Falls is you're standing there and you're from the wall, the water's coming from where you're standing to where the Vic is, is where the water's coming. And it's this big horseshoe and it's just millions of gallons flowing over and it's just constant roar, this constant deafening sound. You have to talk pretty loud to even understand the person sitting next to you. And that's what his voice is like. Not a small voice anymore. It's not a little whisper anymore. It's not that still small voice because he is king and he is Lord and he begins to speak. He had in his right hand seven stars. I don't know what those are. He'll tell us. And his mouth went, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining its all its strength. The, the phrase, the sharp two-edged sword is idiomatic of judgment. Judgment is now coming. And when I saw him, I said, wow, Lord, that's just great. Can I sing another Chris Tomlin song to you? I'm sorry I didn't bring my Bible with me. We have to leave in about 15 minutes because I got other things to do, but sure nice meeting you, Jesus. No. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if dead. Can you imagine? As dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Why? Because I am who I told you I was. I am the first and the last. I am the eternal one. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Truth. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So write the things which you have seen. This is the layout of the book of Revelation. The things you have seen. That's chapter 1. And the things which are. The things that are currently taking place, that is chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, and the things which will take place after these things. That is chapter 4 through the end of the book, the future. And just so that you'll know, Jesus is saying that I am gladly will define everything that you'll see here so there's no confusion. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, I'm going to go ahead and clear that for up for you right in the beginning. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches that you're writing these letters to. And then he goes on to, to begin to write these seven letters. Now, I will not go into the letters, but I do want to remind you at the end of every single letter is this phrase. He who overcomes, and a promise. He who overcomes and keeps my word, I will give him the power of the nations. That's the uh, letter to Thyatira. The one, for example, to Laodicea. Is he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. He who overcomes shall be given the privilege to eat of the fruit of the garden of the tree of life. He who overcomes will be this. And he who overcomes is that. The idea is the fact that you have letters to various churches who are struggling, made up just like we are, of individual believers who are on different levels of sanctification that are, are on different levels, like on a continuum of commitment to him. And so he who overcomes, overcomes the enemy, overcomes the flesh, overcomes self. He who overcomes, there's a promise. He who doesn't overcome, there is no promise. 
Each of those overcoming attributes are symbolized in a crown. All these 24 elders, which represent the church, are given a crown. And that crown is not a diadem. That crown in the Greek is a stuphanus. It's what my I'm named for, Stephen. The, the Greek beginning of that is, is, is a victor's crown. It's one who has overcome. I don't rule anything. I don't control anything because God is sovereign. He's the only one that has a diadem, a, a crown a king has. But I have been given, in their terminology, a wreath. In our terminology, a trophy, uh, an Olympic gold medal. I have been victorious in my race. Paul, I've run the race. I've finished the course. You know, there's laid up for me this treasure in heaven, this, this blessing that's come from that. And so these 24 elders representing us have these overcoming crowns. And they cast those at the Lord's feet because we only overcame because of you. And we, even as victors, are not worthy to have anything that brings glory to ourselves compared to you, Lord. And they cast their crowns at him. Chapter 4, John is taken up to heaven and he's allowed to see heaven, to see the throne of God, to see things that no other person that I know of has been able to see that was commanded to record it. It says, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Imagine that. I don't even know what heaven looks like, but there's a door, and a door is open, and the imagery here is, I can now enter into that. And the first voice which I heard, which was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. This is Greek phrase called metatawa. You'll find that all through the book of Revelation. You find it twice in this verse. After these things, you'll find it down here, which must take place after this. In other words, it's, it's a time verse. And immediately, he was transported in the spirit, much like Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, was taken away from, or Philip, when he was with the Ethiopian eunuch, was taken away and, and, and moved to the, the trail that goes to, the road that goes to Azo, I mean, like, like 25 miles away. Same thing happens here. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and he sees heaven, the same heaven that is seated by the God in which we claim to serve. I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. I don't know how big he is. I don't know how massive he is. I have no idea what that is like. I, I don't know what his face looks like. John didn't either. It was, it, was, it, it, it was something he never imagined. You were transported into heaven, and you see God the Father sitting on his throne. And you try to describe that the best you can. And he, God, who sat on it, was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in an appearance like an emerald. The word jasper, of course, is a phrase that we get the word diamond from. And it's pretty amazing that, I mean, even the Old Testament imagery here, the word jasper and the word sardis. I mean, why those two? Well, if you look from in Exodus uh, chapter 28, you'll look at when God designs the breastplate of the high priest, he puts a number of stones in there. Nobody to this day has figured out why those stones were chosen, but the first stone and the last stone was a jasper and a sardis. Isn't that amazing? First and the last. 
And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like a lion. And around the throne were 24 thrones, smaller thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders, which chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 tells us represent us, the church. And they were clothed in white robes, and they had crowns, stephanus, of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices, this constant murmur of voices. It doesn't say that he can interpret individual sounds, but, but you've been in places where there's just murmuring and everybody's talking and you have no idea what's going on and you can't single up on one conversation, but you know there's, there's uh, activity taking place. Seven lamps of fire. This is not seven lampstands. The seven lampstands that, that uh, represented the seven churches were indoor lamps. These are burning, flaming torches. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like pavement, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, you had the throne, you had these 24 smaller thrones circling it, and in the midst of that, even closer to the throne than the 24 elders, there were four living creatures full of eyes front and back. I am not going to have time to go into great detail about this. We'll have to do this next week. But he describes these creatures, same description that Ezekiel gives us, same description that, that uh, Isaiah gives us, or Daniel gives us. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within, and they do not rest day or night. Now, we focus on these living creatures, how frightening they are. We draw pictures of what it must be like to have these eyes all around them. And do they look like the tail of a peacock? I mean, how is this? And we try to conceptualize what the, the four living creatures are like, and we miss the point. It's not about them. It's about what they do. And they do not rest day and night, 24-7, at all times, their lives absolutely consumed with calling the triad praise of a holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Same thing Isaiah heard in Isaiah 6.3. Lord God Almighty. That phrase that in Genesis 17.1 that God introduced himself to Abraham who was and who is and who is to come. Now watch this. I'm going to close with this. Whenever Whenever. Now, how often do they praise the Lord, does it say? In verse number 8, they do not rest day or night giving God homage. So whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, which is all the time, whenever they do that, which says that they do not rest day or night from doing that, and it describes that person, of course, on the throne as one who lives for an ever and ever. Then the church, then those that represent the redeemed, then you and I that have been forgiven of our sins for no right other than the grace of God and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, they fall down before him who sits on the throne. I mean, I can't think of a, a more appropriate posture 
of the Lord Jesus Christ unless, and, and, and many of us don't even get on our knees when we pray. We don't want to discomfort ourselves at all. We don't even like to pray publicly. Uh, who would like to pray tonight? I mean, I know, I know you don't see it from my vantage point, but on Tuesday night, I'll ask, I asked that question after we take prayer requests, who would like to pray? And it's shocking the people who disconnect eye contact. They're listening to everything. Last Sunday, for example, um, or last Tuesday, I asked the very question, who would like to pray? And the two shyest people in the entire church prayed. The, the ones that are so afraid of standing up, they get really nervous. Show something on the inside. I appreciate that. I mean, I do. I was, I was greatly encouraged with that. Whenever, whenever, I don't care about themselves anymore. They, they fall down and worship him who sits on the throne or fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him. I don't know what that means, but we're going to talk about what true worship is all about on, on Tuesday as we, as we look at Jude and, and we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, and they cast their crowns before the Lord. Lord, anything that I've overcome, anything I've ever accomplished, anything I feel good about, any great work I've done for you, anything that gives my life value, it, 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 I'm not worthy. There's nothing about me that's worthy. Everything belongs to you. Many scholars talk about the, the five different types of crowns in Scripture. There's a martyr crown and there's a, a soul-winning crown. Okay, even if you think that that's what those crowns mean, those stephanos, those rewards or overcoming crowns, whatever it is that defines you as a, as a believer in Christ, well done, good and faithful servant, when you stand up against the one who is totally worthy, that's nothing. That's nothing. I am nothing compared to you. Therefore, I have no self-will. I'm not worried about what other people are going to think. I'm, I'm not ashamed or prideful or embarrassed. I'm, all belongs to you. And this happens every single time. The four living creatures give glory and honor to him who sits on the throne, which is God the Father. And every single time the four living creatures do that, which is day and night, the church responds in unison. Do we have a long way to go? Shocking, isn't it? And this is what heaven is like. Same Jesus, but obviously we'll be changed because we won't worry about all the stuff that just overwhelms us. And they will say, worthy you, Lord, to receive glory and honor and dudamos, miracle-working, achieving power. Why? For you created everything. All the things that we fret about, our house and our job and our family and our personal relationships and our money and our retirement and our cars and all that. No, you created everything. And by your will or your pleasure, they exist and they were created. You created everything for yourself. Chapter 5, verse number 8. And when he had taken a scroll, we'll talk about this next week, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal. Now they're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ because he's been revealed to us in the first seven verses of chapter 5. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. We're redeemed and purchased. By your blood, we're here because of you. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us sinners, kings and priests to our God, not just the God, but our God. And we, 
with you shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, like coming out of the woodwork, or maybe it was like the Shekinah glory illuminated. So John is not seeing the 24 elders, but he sees this myriad of angels as far as you can see in a huge circle around the throne. Many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. It was a bigger number than the Greek language could even put in here. Again, myriads and myriads and myriads is how it says in the original. And they all say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then all creatures saved and lost will see God for who he is. Do you remember the Lord saying that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all in them, every creature will say blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. This doxology doesn't say you have redeemed us, but it's just talking about the virtues of him. And then the 24 creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever and ever. If you continue, and I, I won't, I'll stop for today. You can go and you can look at chapter 7. There's another doxology. And a few chapters later, there's another one. And they keep growing in, in intensity and crescendo as God is more manifested. In. I mean, this is the God we serve. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who has chosen, chosen, who has chosen to live inside of you, to give you his spirit, to prepare a place for you in heaven, to give you spiritual gifts that you can bear so the Father is given certain glory, who promises to never leave you or forsake you, who gives you spiritual armor so you can stand up against Satan and all the wiles of the enemy and become overcomers. And all he asks you to do is reject everything else in your life and accept him. Make him first. Because when you get to heaven, he will be first, will he not? Who cares what someone else thinks? Well, that person over there just seems too flowery in their worship. It just makes me feel uncomfortable the way they fall down on their face in the middle of the church service. No, you feel convicted, just like I would be. I wish I could worship someone like that. Well, you can. No, I'm more concerned about me, how people are going to view me. It's all about me. So again, we have so much more to cover. But just summing up this, I mean, what can we learn? First of all, the Antichrist's job is to deflect the worship that belongs to the Lord and have it focused on something or someone else all the time. Something that is not worthy of that worship. Whether it's you, whether it's some rider on a white horse who has a bow and has been given authority to conquer and to conquer and we'll just give our allegiance to him. Whether it's fame or fortune, whether it's your pride or arrogance, it's somehow if we can take the glory that belongs to God from the creator and deflect it to the creation, Satan wins every single time. This is the summary of every one of his attacks, is to get your eyes off Christ and put your eyes on something else. And if heaven is going to be like this, and Christ really is like this, and we haven't even looked at Jesus yet, that's in chapter 5. I mean, shouldn't our time together here be that way? 
And I'm not asking you to come in here and be different. This is not something designed to change the way we worship here. I'm asking you to start by spending time with him alone and be different. To, to find a way to worship him in a way that truly pleases him. Find a way that worships him with reckless abandon. Go Be alone. Go into your bedroom and close the door when nobody's there and just spend time with him. Because when we come together here, what we're supposed to do here together is what we do privately alone. The way I worship him in my quiet time, the way I worship him up here is the way I should worship him among you. You know, when when Karen or Levi comes up here and leads us in worship, you know, I love this phrase. It was always the song leader or the worship leader or the minister of music or the minister of worship. It's not really that way at all. Their job is to be uh, like the, to to worship while they're singing and then we can either worship or not. You know, their job is, Levi's job and Karen's job is to come up here and just to worship themselves. I watch I watch my wife many times, and when she's playing, she's got her eyes closed. She don't care about us. I mean, she's not focusing on you, because if she did, she might get discouraged. I'm playing music and nobody's singing. Kind of dep- Remember those days? You've been in churches where it happened a lot. And If you focus on them, if I'm preaching and I look at you, and I see some people sleeping and some people not paying attention and some people, you know, checking, you know, football scores and stuff. And that could really, that could not feel good. It's not about you. It's about me worshiping him by proclaiming this message. It's about Levi worshiping the Lord by singing these songs and Karen doing exactly the same thing. It's, it's, it's how we do it privately. So I'm asking you to spend some time with this magnanimous God, read about him in, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1 and read verses 4 through 25. We're going to do that next week. Where Ezekiel sees God, but he doesn't use the word like that much. Some, but not much. This is what he was. This is who he is. And this is what these four living creatures, this is who they are. And see who this God is. And when your heart releases itself from our own spiritual narcissism, and I have it too, then all of a sudden we can come in here and have freedom to worship the same God in here in the same way we worship Him privately. Amen? Because the question we have to ask ourselves is, why don't we do that? Is it pride? Yeah, I just feel uncomfortable. That's pride. Who cares? I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine standing when everybody else is on their face in heaven, and this massive strong angel, we're going to see him show up sometimes in the book of Revelation. We have no idea who it is. It doesn't say it's Gabriel or, or Michael. I mean, this unnamed angel, but the strong angel who makes his massive proclamation comes up to us and looks at us and goes, why are you not on your face before our God? If you say, I just feel uncomfortable, don't think that will fly. You know? Can you imagine when he's, anyway, let me just ask you, as time is drawing close to him returning, that you spend some quiet time with him tonight, today. Just go home and just put things aside for an hour. I mean, good night. We always take naps in the afternoon on Sundays. We have projects we have to do just for an hour and spend some time with him and see if he doesn't change your life 
privately, and then we can come in here and glorify him because of his goodness. Amen? Let me pray.